is highly addictive, and its dependency often destroys lives. Communities that report a high instance of meth arrests also report a corresponding high level of property crime, domestic abuse, children taken into protective custody, and hospitalizations. Friends, don't use meth. So it's World War II, and Adolf Hitler was getting his daily injection from his doctor. And albeit a tiny amount, the substance that kept him going was methamphetamine. His soldiers, well, they were taking fistfuls of the stuff, which they called Stuka tablets, meth in pill form. And its use created super soldiers on the battlefield. They were aggressive, they were fearless, and they didn't need much sleep for about three days. Then, well, you're going to find out in today's episode. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we are looking at the history of methamphetamine. Now, I previously did a video on the history of meth in the United States, and the most common comment was that you wanted to hear about its history globally. So that's what we're going to do in this video. We're going to talk about meth's creation. We're going to talk about its evolution from a liquid to a powder, then to a crystal. We're going to talk about its use in World War II, its use medicinally, its use recreationally. And we are going to examine the fascinating back and forth over time between the government's outlawing of meth and its precursors and the ingenuity of meth producers to adapt and evolve the synthesis process to keep the production rolling. Finally, we will talk about meth in society today, from the Yaba in Southeast Asia to the relatively inexpensive, often 100% pure product that sophisticated meth labs are pumping out in Mexico. All of that and more in today's episode. If you enjoy the episode, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, you've got a comment, put it in the comment section below. And if you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button and that noti bell so you're notified every time we upload. And recall that all Lawyer Up episodes are available on the major podcast formats. First and foremost, let's start with a little bit about me. I'm a criminal defense attorney and have been for about the past 25 years. I practice primarily at the federal level in Southwest Missouri. Now, Missouri has formerly been known as the meth capital of the United States. So I've handled tons of cases regarding the distribution and possession of large amounts of methamphetamine. Now, statistically, the majority of the inmates that are in prison are there for drug offenses. And within that category, meth offenders make up the largest portion of that population. Now, users and your street-level vendors, they usually get charged in state court, and they get to go to drug court or repeat customers get drug treatment and short-term prison programs. Now, your large-scale dealers, they go to federal court, where the sentences range from 10 years to life. So in most cases that I handle, life in prison is at stake. And these are usually multi-defendant drug conspiracy cases at the federal level. So the question arises, 
With such punitive punishments, why do people still use and deal the drug? And to answer that, we first need to talk about what meth is. Now, methamphetamine is a potent central nervous system stimulant that is mainly used as a recreational drug and less commonly medicinally for insomnia, ADHD, obesity, narcolepsy, depression, and as a nasal decongestant. Its prescription form in the U.S. is primarily desoxin or dexedrine, although it is rarely prescribed due to concerns of addiction and the potential for abuse. Now, Adderall is the most common amphetamine-based medical treatment for ADHD, and it is more commonly prescribed. Meth is listed as a Schedule II controlled substance in the United States and on the United Nations Global Controlled Substances list. Its non-prescription use is illegal in most countries. In the U.S., the non-prescription possession of any amount of methamphetamine is a felony at the federal level and in most states. However, the simple possession has been decriminalized in a handful of states the practical implication of which means that if you possess a personal use amount of meth in a state where it has been decriminalized, while still technically a violation of federal law, the feds don't bust users. They bust dealers. So you are not likely to be charged. So when we're talking about meth, we're primarily talking about the illegal recreational consumption. And worldwide, the highest prevalence of meth use occurs in Southeast Asia and in the United States. In low to moderate doses, methamphetamine can elevate mood, increase alertness, concentration and energy, reduce appetite, and promote weight loss. In a high dose, it can induce psychosis, a breakdown of skeletal muscle tissues, seizures, bleeding in the brain, unpredictable and rapid mood swings, cause paranoia, hallucinations, delirium, delusions, and violent behavior. One of its most discernible physical displays in chronic users is twitching, facial lesions, and meth mouth with numerous missing and or decaying teeth. The real problem with methamphetamine is its high addiction liability, which is the likelihood that its use will lead to compulsive repeated use and its high dependence liability, which is the likelihood that withdrawal symptoms will occur when its use ceases. And that's because meth increases the dopamine output in the brain and it blocks its natural reuptake. Dopamine is the chemical that gives us that warm and fuzzy feeling or that rush when certain things happen. However, meth's artificial dopamine production decreases the body's natural tendencies to produce dopamine itself. So while the highs are high, the low dopamine levels are lower than normal, which creates that strong desire to return to the higher levels that meth provides. So meth use creates a vicious cycle of dopamine addiction and dependence that is actually exacerbated every time the user uses. So where does this stuff come from in the first place? Well, some psychotropic substances or drugs just grow naturally. Marijuana or peyote, for example. Other psychotropic drugs have to be synthesized or made from a precursor. Now, this precursor can be naturally occurring, like opium that is used to make heroin, 
or the precursor may have to be created itself artificially like the precursors for meth. The big three precursors for meth are phenylacetone, ephedrine, and pseudoephedrine. Remember those because they come up a lot in this video. So when we're talking about the history of meth, we start with the closely related amphetamine, which was first synthesized in 1887 in Germany. Shortly thereafter, in 1893, methamphetamine was synthesized from ephedrine by Japanese organic chemist Nagai Nagayoshi. The main difference between amphetamine and methamphetamine is the addition of the methyl group, which allows it to cross the blood-brain barrier faster, making it feel more potent to the user. And the blood-brain barrier is exactly what it sounds like. In your head, where blood vessels come into contact with your brain, there is a barrier between the two, like a fence. The barrier is designed to allow certain substances to flow through, such as certain amino acids, while keeping out pathogens in the blood that would otherwise affect the central nervous system. Now, it's not a solid fence. It's more like a chain link, so substances can be created to penetrate the barrier. Amphetamine is one example. However, as I noted, methamphetamine is much more effective at penetrating the blood-brain barrier, having a greater effect on your central nervous system. So, by 1900, we have the advent of meth. Now, free meth molecules are oily liquids. They're not solids, and so they're not real practical. So, in 1919, methamphetamine hydrochloride was synthesized by Akira Ogata via the reduction of ephedrine using red phosphorus and iodine. And if that sounds familiar to you Breaking Bad fans, it should, because this was one of the ways that Walter White used to make meth on the show. The hydrochloride state transforms the liquid into a solid, or a salt, as it is called in organic chemistry, which can then be distributed in tablet or powder form. So amphetamine first hits the commercial market in 1932 when benzedrine was released as an inhaler to treat nasal congestion. No prescription needed. And it didn't take long for people to realize and like the energy it provided. Capitalizing on the popularity, the pharmaceutical company would go on to produce it in pill form, nicknamed Benny's, which became popular in the 40s and the early 50s until they were available by prescription only. American novelist Jack Kerouac's On the Road is often cited as a literary work fueled by the drug. But let's stay in the 30s. In 1938, methamphetamine was marketed in Germany as a non-prescription drug under the brand name Pervitin. It was widely used by all branches of the armed forces of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany for its stimulant effects to induce aggressiveness, extended wakefulness, and to decrease fear among soldiers. Pervitin became known among German troops as Stuka tablets, and it created super soldiers for about three days. Then the soldiers either became unresponsive zombies or they turned violent, committing war crimes against civilians, fellow soldiers, and even their own officers. The side effects were so severe that the army would sharply cut back its usage. But they weren't the only military that was using the drug during World War II. 
both amphetamine and meth were being widely used by American, British, and Japanese forces. And while the mass distribution of meth pills to troops has been curtailed, go pills are still authorized for spot use by the U.S. military to this day. And as I mentioned in the open, even Adolf Hitler himself would receive daily injections from his personal physician during the war. After the war's end in 1946, the meth stockpiles used by the German and Japanese military were simply dumped and were widely available for consumption. This created a frenzy, particularly in Japan, where it was new to the general population. By 1950, amphetamine use had hit the mainstream in the United States, where it was widely consumed as a diet pill and as a pep pill by long-distance truck drivers and students cramming for finals. Specifically, Obitrol, patented by Obitrol Pharmaceuticals, became one of the most popular diet pills in America in the 50s and 60s. As with many psychotropic drugs, as the addictive and destructive nature became apparent, governments began to strictly regulate the production and distribution of amphetamine and meth. Possession and use of meth without a prescription became illegal in the UK in 1964 and in the US in 1970 with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act. But the cat was out of the bag and there was already a large segment of the population that really, really liked meth. And where there is a demand, there will be a supply. So outlawing meth simply spawned its illegal synthesis which has a different story depending upon which part of the globe we are talking about. But in the United States, the first major group to start underground production of meth was biker gangs in and around San Francisco, California. So these biker gangs began to make meth, primarily in powder form, from the precursor they had access to, which was phenylacetone. It's also known as P2P. This was the main component at the time in swimming pool cleaner. So, no joke, bikers were making meth from swimming pool cleaner and storing it in the crankcases of their motorcycles. Hence the name crank. It was also referred to as probe or speed during this time period. In fact, the use, abuse, and crime resulting from the methamphetamine epidemic in San Francisco around 1970 led to the now common everyday saying, quote, speed kills. So meth is illegal as of 1970, but it takes the government about 10 years to crack down on the availability of P2P. But by 1980, it was regulated and you needed a license to get it. And this made a temporary dent in the meth market in the United States as producers scrambled to find a new precursor, which they soon found in ephedrine. So in the 1980s, ephedrine was a stimulant that became popular in connection with over-the-counter weight loss supplements. And this was the new precursor that everyone sought because at the time it was easily obtainable and not regulated like P2P. In fact, Jesus and Luis Amezcua, through the Colima cartel in Mexico, basically dominated the ephedrine market and the meth business in the late 80s and the early 90s. Now, they're in prison today, but in their prime, they were flying tons of powder ephedrine into Mexico from Thailand and India. So ephedrine was king during this time period, but recall it wasn't new. 
Recall that Nagayoshi had used ephedrine to make meth back in the late 1800s, so it was more of a return to its roots than an entirely new precursor. Now, something else was also going on about this time. In the late 80s, labs in Southeast Asia introduced a process of recrystallization of methamphetamine hydrochloride that resulted in large, clear crystals. And thus, crystal meth, or ice, was born, and within a few short years would explode in popularity and basically replace powdered meth going forward. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to ephedrine. By the mid-90s, government and law enforcement caught on, and ephedrine also became regulated worldwide. Again, this created another dent in the U.S. meth market. But by the mid-2000s, producers just switched precursors again. This time, it was to pseudoephedrine, and that was found in cold pills like Sudafed. So producers started buying these cold pills in mass quantities and using them to make meth. And it was real easy, because when you are talking about chemical structure, pseudoephedrine is just a hair off of actual methamphetamine. And we're going to talk about how meth is made in a minute. But once the government caught on to the pseudo-craze, they ultimately responded by putting cold pills with pseudoephedrine behind the counters and limiting per-person purchase quantities in stores. So people just started going to multiple stores. I may only get two boxes per store, but if I hit every store in town, I can still get enough pills. And if I get a group of people doing this who are affectionately referred to as Smurfs, I can still pull some serious quantities. Well, the government catches on again and creates statewide databases to track all of the purchases by all of the people at all of the stores. A Smurf killer. And, you know, it worked at least as to pseudoephedrine sales in the United States, and it pushed methamphetamine production in the United States even further underground. Now, these regulations didn't really matter elsewhere. In Mexico, cartels have large meth labs, and they have more firepower than law enforcement. So they basically do what they want, and they just continue to crank out meth however they see fit. Same in Southeast Asia, where military actually protects production in some areas. But in the United States, by 2010, large-scale meth production became really tough. So high-volume dealers in the United States just basically quit making meth and purchased it from the cartels in Mexico. But many of the end users and the addicts started making it in kitchens and bathtubs, especially in the Midwest and the Southeast, using the shake and bake or the one pot method. And to really understand the switch, we need to take a little hiatus from the timeline and explain how meth is made. Now, I'm not gonna give you an exact recipe. I've omitted quantities, the exact chemicals, the cook temperatures, so this is a discussion on how meth is made, not how to make meth, if that makes sense. Now remember the three main precursors. We have our phenylacetone, the P2P, we have ephedrine, and then we have pseudoephedrine. And the process is different depending upon what you start with. So let's talk a little bit about the P2P or the phenylacetone. Now you take your phenylacetone and it is combined with methylamine, which is a gas that smells like ammonia, but it is sold in a liquid solution. You can get it in a bottle or a 55-gallon drum. So these chemicals are then combined in a process that organic chemists call reductive emanation, 
with the result being methamphetamine. Those of you familiar with Breaking Bad will recall that after Walt and Jesse realized that making meth from cold pills was not going to yield a sufficient output, they moved from pseudoephedrine to phenylacetone and methylamine. Originally by stealing a 55 gallon drum from a warehouse and then ultimately in a later season by stealing a whole tanker car full of the stuff in the desert. So methylamine is still pretty common and can be found in every organic chemistry lab. Anybody can buy it, but you do get put on a list somewhere when you order it, especially in large quantities. Now phenylacetone, as I mentioned, originally was pretty easy to come by, but over the years has been identified as a meth precursor and today is regulated and difficult to obtain if you are not a research lab. Now the trend with those that prefer this type of meth but don't have access to phenylacetone is simply to back up one step and start with phenylacetic acid which is primarily used in the perfume and cologne industry, but right now is easy to get a hold of and can be converted to phenylacetone by multiple different methods. So that's how meth is made with P2P. Now, when you're talking about the reduction of ephedrine or pseudoephedrine, there are several chemical agents that can be used in that process. The most popular synthesis process uses either lithium in liquid ammonia as the reducing agent or the original red phosphorus and iodine method. Now, the phosphorus and iodine method was made popular by Walter White on Breaking Bad, and it works, but it's messy and it's dangerous. So the other method is often favored. With pseudo or ephedrine, you heat the mixture, which dissolves the inert substances out of it. Then you run it through a filter, and once the liquid evaporates, what you are left with is basically meth. Pseudo itself is almost meth, just needs a little tweaking. And that's great if you are a drug cartel and you have access to all of the chemicals you need and a fancy, big, formal meth lab. But what if you don't? So the whole point of the shake and bake or the one pot method is that you don't have access to a formal lab. You don't have access to the needed chemicals. So the question is, how do you get a hold of the reaction and the purifying chemicals needed to reduce the precursor, which with these guys is usually pseudo pills, to meth? Well, you have to improvise. You need lithium, so you take it from lithium batteries. You need anhydrous ammonia and hydrous meaning without water, but you can get that from farm fertilizer. Or for the other process, you need red phosphorus. You can get that from matches or road flares. You need iodine. That comes from teat dip, which is what it sounds like. It's used to clean off cow teats after milking. You can get that at any farm and home store. And the list goes on depending upon the recipe. You need toluene. You can get that from brake cleaner. Diethyl ether comes from engine starter. Sulfuric acid you can get from drain cleaner. Sodium hydrochloride, you can get that from lye. Same for xylene or acetone, muriatic acid. It's all available in some other product in one form or another. So these guys would get the appropriate ingredients and combine them in say a two liter bottle. You shake it, it creates a chemical reaction, so you vent it. Then you shake it some more, and then you vent it some more. If you don't vent it properly, it will blow up. You've heard of meth lab explosions. It's usually because of improper venting. So after you properly mix these substances, it settles into layers. So you siphon off the appropriate layer, you put it in a glass dish, and when the liquid evaporates, you are left with crystals or meth. 
Now, it's low volume, it's low quality, it's often off color, and some call it peanut butter dope. But these bathtub and mobile meth labs were really popular in the United States when only a couple of Mexican drug cartels had a stranglehold on the product. If you go back to the early 70s, there were only two major drug trafficking organizations even existing in Mexico. Compare that to today, where law enforcement identifies the existence of nine separate drug cartels and 36 additional cell groups or gangs that are all involved in some way in the Mexican drug trade. Now, the main players are the Sinaloa cartel, which is the biggest cartel in Mexico, formerly headed by El Chapo, and the Jalisco New Generation cartel, which is its chief competitor, with meth being one of its specialties. However, like I said, there are lots of players in the game. Today, most of the meth in the United States is created in super labs by these cartels in Mexico and then smuggled into the country. The meth is super pure and due to all the competition, it's super cheap. In 2022, it's going for less than a third of what it used to go for just a few years ago. So it's cheap. It's pure, it's available. There's really no need for the crappy bathtub dope anymore. As a consequence, mobile meth lab busts are significantly down in the US. But that's just the US. Let's talk about the other hotspot. Today, within the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia, Myanmar is the world's leading producer of crystal methamphetamine, although production has shifted in large part to Yaba, which is meth in pill form. The Cantonese Chinese syndicate Sam Gore, also known as The Company, is the main international crime syndicate responsible for its distribution. Sam Gore is involved in various criminal enterprises, but primarily traffics drugs, earning an estimated $8 billion per year. Sam Gore is alleged to control 40% of the Asia-Pacific methamphetamine market, the organization is not only active in Southeast Asia, but also in Australia, Japan, China, and Taiwan. The group is headed by Su Chi Lop, aka Asia's El Chapo. Yaba, which translates to crazy pill or crazy medicine, is known by many slang terms throughout Southeast Asia. It is a colored pill that is a combination of methamphetamine and caffeine. Originally used to provide a little extra boost to workhorses in Myanmar, it quickly caught on as a recreational drug. Since it is in pill form, you can just take it orally, but some smash it and snort it, while others will smoke it. Most people don't shoot yaba intravenously. Those that inject meth usually prefer straight meth, which they call ice in Southeast Asia and elsewhere because of its appearance that is similar to shards of ice. Yaba is primarily manufactured in Myanmar where its production and trafficking is actually supported and protected by the military. Its consumption is most popular in Thailand where it is often used recreationally as well as is commonplace in the sex worker community. It is estimated that billions of tablets are produced annually. And while it is occasionally found in the United States, Yaba has never really caught on here. So that's the present state of meth in its hotspots. It's pure cheap ice in the US and it's Yaba in Southeast Asia. So Yaba Daba Do. That is the episode. If you enjoyed it, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, put it in the comment sections below. Is there something I left out, something you want to hear more about? Let me know about it. 
If you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Smash that subscribe button now. And you guys know it. I love it when you share me on social media. I appreciate you watching. My name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money.